This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for January 27th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal. I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. And today we're joined by someone who scarcely needs an introduction. Dr. Anthony Fauci has been Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases for about as long as anyone can remember. In this role, he does just about everything. He's continued to direct his own lab and perform clinical research, still sees patients, and directs an institute that's the largest funder of infectious disease research in the world. Given his involvement in disease research, he's also been a key contributor to setting policy. By his own account, he's testified in front of Congress more than anyone in U.S. history. And his contributions to policymaking, which were critical during prior outbreaks, influenza, Zika, Ebola, have never been more important than they are now during the COVID-19 epidemic. Over the past year, Dr. Fauci has added to his portfolio as a ubiquitous and trusted public communicator. There's really no better person to help us understand both the science and the policymaking around COVID-19. So today we'd like to cover several topics and look toward understanding where things are today and where they might be in the next several months. I'd like to start with testing. In a perfect world, how would implementing COVID-19 tests be what's on the horizon in the near future that might change the approach we are now taking? Well, in the very beginning, testing was really fundamentally directed at people who were symptomatic in the context of when you get a case that is a clear-cut case of COVID-19, you would do the typical standard identification, isolation, and contact tracing with a highly sensitive, highly specific PCR assay. What has evolved now, as we understand so much better, beginning you know, somewhere in the early spring of 2020, that the outbreak is really driven in many respects by people who are without symptoms. In fact, recent papers that have come out show that approximately 50 plus percent of all transmissions occur from a person who is either asymptomatic and will remain asymptomatic or is asymptomatic in the sense of being pre-symptomatic and then will develop symptoms days or whatever following a particular encounter with another person. And so right now we've evolved in having to know what the penetrance of infection is in society. So what we're seeing going forward we're getting there step-by-step step in the sense of getting point-of-care, highly sensitive, highly specific assays that are inexpensive, not requiring a prescription from a physician that can be used by virtually anyone anywhere on a personal basis. For example, if you want to know if you can gather people in your own family or friends in your house, you could just get this done. If a storekeeper wants to know whether or not the employees who walk in that day are positive or not. That is really getting away from what we had before where we were saying, not everyone who wants a test can get a test. Only people who need a test can get a test. Now it's anybody who wants a test can get a test. And there are many, many good reasons besides identification, isolation, and contact tracing that would warrant the test. How close are we to that test and having that test be affordable so that you could do it every time you walked into a school, for example? Is that, yeah. is that on the horizon? You know, Eric, I think it is. The thing that needs to be perfected, and I don't see any reason why we cannot do that given you know the technologies and the expertise we have. We have everything in place except the degree of sensitivity because what we're working on right now 
is that if you look at the sensitivity of these antigen rapid inexpensive tests that you're referring to, they are good when you're doing them multiple times in a particular setting because the averaging out is that you will pick up someone who is at least transmissible. They may be infected, but have such a low level of virus in their nasopharynx that you want something that really is truly 98%, 99% sensitive for someone who is without symptoms. The idea about expense, I think, is not going to be an issue. The idea about accessibility, I think we have to just work on the degree of sensitivity in the context of someone who is without symptoms. Dr. Fauci, I think what you're getting at is there are different ways that tests are used. And if we're using it to diagnose somebody with acute illness coming into the hospital, we may have different expectations of the testing than if we're doing serial testing for occupational or school participation. Don't we have to help set that framework for our community to better understand? You know, absolutely, Lindsay. I mean, that's the whole issue. And I believe that there still is as much as we try, you know, and there have been a number of papers and commentaries published, including in the journal, is that what we really do need is we need to get people to understand just what you're saying. I mean, this is so critical now for schools. If by the time we get to the point where we get a number of people vaccinated and we have a situation where we feel somewhat more comfortable in getting children back to school, the idea of getting teachers tested, students tested would make the entire situation of the policies of schools, of restaurants, of gatherings at sports events and entertainment events, it would turn it around completely. So you're right. We really have to reorient people in understanding the difference between testing somebody who comes into the hospital with symptoms and you want to make sure that they are indeed infected versus whether or not you want to have a sports event. Because along these lines, Dr. Fauci, the sensitivity you mentioned, particularly with serial testing, But the specificity side of the equation has also created a lot of headache. And in a lot of our schools in the Commonwealth, our colleges, serial testing has been deployed. And what's been a challenge has been interpreting a positive because of the implications it's hard to ignore. But we all know when you do tens of thousands of tests, not all are true positives, which gets to the science behind the application. Exactly, Lindsay. Uh, Particularly when you have a population in which the overwhelming majority of the people are actually negative, the chances of getting into trouble with a false positive there are considerable. So that needs to be worked out on both ends of that spectrum, both sensitivity and specificity. But the issue of testing, Dr. Fauci, is a capacity issue in that how do we go to scale and how do we deliver to scale? And I worry that over the last year, the science of SARS-CoV-2 has been such a tremendous undertaking that we haven't spent as much time thinking about the less interesting side, which is how do you manufacture the reagent? How do you deliver it? How do you actually deploy it? How do we enhance our ability to deploy these technologies in a way that serves the public health best? You know, I don't have an easy answer for that, Lindsay. But when you say deploy, in other words, how do you get them out to wherever they need to be? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is we need to be able to produce them literally in the sense of millions and millions and millions, as much as you want. And there's no reason why we can't do that. I know the RADx that you're aware of, the endeavor on the part of the NIH to get involved in the field of diagnostics 
to be able to essentially do, I believe what you're maybe indirectly pointing to is how you can actually get almost an unlimited supply of tests that what I would see, and the reason is because I so often get so many calls, as I'm sure you all do, is that why can't we have something that essentially is in the pharmacy for a dollar and a half or for 50 cents? So you can go in and just get it yourself. You know, it's very interesting because over the holidays, I don't know whether you all do it. You know, I have a daughter in Cambridge (laughs) where you guys are. And the question is, should she come home to her 80-year-old daddy or not to determine if she is infected and with all of the tests and the lack of specificity, it really would be great if she could get in her car or on a plane you know, get off at National Airport, take a test that's 98% sensitive and specific, and then walk in, you know, and give her daddy a hug for the first time in in a year. That would have really been nice. I would have paid a lot of money for that test. (laughs) She's not alone, uh, nor are you. So clearly over the past year, there's been considerable effort in developing therapies for people who do contract COVID-19. As a clinician, what do you think about the tools that are now available as therapeutics? And what do you see on the horizon? What are we going to see over the next several months? Well, you know, I have to say without adding an element of discouragement on this, that the arena of therapy really lags significantly behind the quality of the science and the results that we've gotten with vaccines. I mean, not even in the same ballpark, if you look at that. So if you look at therapy at what stage of disease, it seems interesting, I might say, from someone who spent the earlier part of my career with inflammatory diseases, that the best that we have right now that you know works by a clear-cut good trial is that when someone has got advanced disease in which the virus is less of an issue than the aberrant inflammatory response, that in people who are hospitalized, either requiring a ventilator or high flow oxygen, that dexamethasone six milligrams for up to 10 days is about as good as you get. It has a major diminution of 28 day mortality. But then once you get past that, the thing that's really been a stumbling block is, uh, you know, we have a lot of experimental approaches with blockers of inflammatory response and various elements, you know, IL-6 receptor inhibitors. We have blockers of JAK kinase. We have a whole variety of things that are in the mix. The thing that we sorely need is a medication to give to someone who is infected and beginning to be symptomatic to give them an oral medication that would prevent them from advancing to the point of needing hospitalization. So what do we have? Well, we have a confusing element of therapies, I think. You have convalescent plasma in which the results to say have been mixed is an understatement. We know it needs to be given to people who have not yet mounted an immune response, because if you give it to an individual who already is making antibody, we know from a number of studies, it doesn't work. Then you have a whole array of monoclonal antibodies, which almost the logistic aspects of it make it inherently problematic because you want to give it early, which means you want to give it before a person gets into the hospital, but it's intravenously administered and you want to do it in an infusion center. You know, when I was sitting in the situation room talking about, okay, we got these monoclonal antibodies, we'll get infusion centers, we'll get people to stick the IV in. 
and you find out that when you're in a city, a town, or a state in which the medical staff is completely overwhelmed with desperately ill people, nobody's going to want to come and stick an IV in, wait an hour before, an hour during, an hour after for someone who barely has some symptoms. So even though you have the Regeneron antibodies and you have the Lilly antibodies, that in a number of tests, some of which came out yesterday in some of the preprint literature, that in fact, it still is not adequate, even though it would work theoretically. If you can get anybody into somebody who's not making an adequate antibody response as the antiviral component of it. And then you have a number of other therapies, anticoagulants, you have a variety of others. The thing that I believe, and that when I was looking at the question, when you said, what will we likely see over the next months? If we could extend that and say several months to a year or so, what I think we absolutely should do, and there's no reason why we can't do it, is exactly what we did for HIV and for hepatitis C, to get a direct acting antiviral agent that you could give orally. You don't have to give it for life the way we do with HIV. We don't even have to give it for eight weeks the way we do with hepatitis C. You need to give it for about 10 days. So we're putting in a lot of effort now, and I hope we get the collaboration and the cooperation of the pharmaceutical industry to get the direct acting agent. So when someone comes in, mild symptoms, you're afraid they're going to go ahead and advance into something that would require hospitalization, you know, almost like a Z-pack. I'm not trying to be facetious, but almost when you come in, you get five to 10 days of a direct antiviral. That's really what we need. Everything else we're doing is laudable, but it is really not getting at the problem that we're facing. So sorry for being a little long-winded on that, but uh, I think you're sensing my frustration in not having something that we really should have. So one of the problems with drug development for a disease like this is by the time you get the new direct-acting antiviral, the disease has been controlled and maybe even eliminated through vaccination because the pace of vaccination, as you've said, has been so much more rapid. Do you think that you can develop agents looking towards the next beta coronavirus outbreak and hoping that they'll be broadly active against this class of virus? Eric, that's a great point, And that's exactly what we're talking about. You know, I have been talking about, you know, getting a universal influenza vaccine. And then we were talking about a universal coronavirus vaccine. Well, before we try to get every single one of these, we should think in terms of exactly what you are referring to. Find the common denominator vulnerable part of the replication cycle of coronaviruses in general, and even SARS-CoV-2, because we're getting mutants now that it's looked like we could possibly be dealing with multiple pandemics at the same time which is, you know, a single pandemic is frightening enough, but multiple ones overlapping in different parts of the world with the South African, the UK, the Brazilian mutants, and they're going to be more. The answer to your question is absolutely right. We should be looking at drugs that are specific for a particular family of viruses. If we had that, that would really be good because the pharmaceutical companies would be making an investment of something that would be for the future in addition to what we're dealing with now. So I couldn't agree more with what you said. But there's a larger strategy here, which when we spoke about testing, if we actually had home-based testing where I could test the way I wanted to, not 
what capacity allows. That also allows triggering of treatment earlier because cases get identified before they come to the healthcare center. And I think the testing approach for infectious diseases has not kept up with what technology allows, at least until the last few years. And so I see a potential strategy that could really allow us to attack these kinds of infections much earlier with a package of response modalities. Yeah, I agree, Lindsay. You're absolutely right. Absolutely. You know, and, and the interesting thing is you wouldn't be confined to people who were symptomatic and were all of a sudden starting to progress. I think that's what you're alluding to, Lindsay, is that you go in, you're positive, take your medication because you don't know if you're going to be the one that's going to progress. Dr. Fauci, like your daughter, your daughter takes the test before she comes visits you. She has no symptoms. She's positive. At that point in time, we now have a moment to intervene before transmission occurs, before illness occurs. Of course, we don't know if she would become ill, but it's a moment of intervention much earlier than all our current strategies are based. Yeah, I agree with you completely, totally. So as you say, the greatest success we've seen has probably been in the development of vaccines, but the logistics involved in producing them and administering them have been challenging. Do you see innovations that are going to make a real difference in how we get these vaccines out to the public? Yes, absolutely. And that's something that is really on the front burner in an intense way with what's going on right now with the medical team that I'm privileged to be part of in the Biden administration, even though it's just a few days old. And to give credit where credit is due, I believe that the Operation Warp Speed group of the prior administration really was very successful in many ways, and we should give credit there. The answer to the question is that there are multiple phases in the vaccine endeavor, and I would think that the public hopefully will begin to appreciate that. There's the scientific effort of the development of the concept and the proof of the concept with the trial and a successful vaccine that's efficacious and safe. That was a resounding success. Then there's the production. There's the putting it into the fill and finish. There's the allocation. There's the transportation. There's the distribution. And then it's sticking in people's arms. And as you get from the actual concept production down to getting it into people's arms, it gets to be more complicated from the standpoint of where you are and what the community is. For example, getting vaccines shipped to a hospital and having hospital personnel give it to hospital personnel is relatively easy, as is getting it to a nursing home and getting it there. What things are really going to get complicated is how do you get it to the underserved communities that live in what they call pharmacy deserts, where there's not a pharmacy around. But if you want to look at the multiple ways to approach it is A, community vaccine centers in the community where there are people who are underserved, particularly brown and black people who we hope do not get this disparity that we see in so many other elements of health. The next is pharmacies. I mean, if you really wanted to get quantitatively a lot of people, you just have them get it in a pharmacy. Same as Lindsay was saying, you go in, you get a test, you get a drug, you get a vaccine right in the pharmacy. And then there's mobile units where you can actually go out into the community. All of those things right now are being planned. What we're seeing, and I was literally on the phone last night with the health officials from 
multiple different cities and saying, you know, I'm hearing that there's places where there's vaccine on the shelf, but we don't have enough people to give it out or we don't have the logistics. And then other people say, you know, I'm dying to get more vaccine. I'm just the supply completely does not meet the demand. So I asked, what is the real answer to that question? What is the problem? And overwhelmingly, with very few exceptions, in fact, no really substantive exceptions, it was that the supply is not meeting the demand. And that is just absolutely true, which is the reason why, as I got up and read in the Washington Post this morning, but I knew about it because I was literally talking to the team last night, is that the president has now made further arrangements with both Pfizer and Moderna to get an additional 100 million doses each from them, which means the total now will be 600 million just from those two companies. So no matter what happens with Janssen and Novavax and the others, we are still now will have a confirmed 600 million. So the real question is going to be, how do we efficiently get it out into the community in a way that is actually equitable. And I think that's the one thing we really got to be careful of. We don't want in the beginning that most of the people who are getting it are otherwise well middle-class white people. <laughs> you know, you really want to get it to the people who are really the most vulnerable. You want to get it to everybody, but you don't want to have a situation where people who really are in need of it because of where they are, where they live, what their economic status is, that they don't have access to the vaccine. I'm keenly aware of this right now because at midnight last night, I got up to schedule a vaccine appointment for my 88-year-old mother-in-law, and it took 20 minutes online, and it's fantastic that she's getting her vaccine next week. It was a terrific outcome, but she couldn't have done it, not by herself, and there aren't that many 88-year-olds who could pull that one off, and, and my stepmother spent six hours waiting in line after a 90-mile drive in Florida. So it's clear there is a real patchwork approach right now. I guess one of the questions for you is, should there be a more coordinated federal response that helps eliminate some of those inconsistencies? Great question, Eric. And that's exactly what's part of the plan. You might recall a few days ago, I mean, these days go so quickly. It was just the middle of last week, like literally two days after the inauguration, when President Biden got up and put up a 101-page national strategic plan for COVID-19 and pandemic preparedness. And part of this was something that I believe is going to address what you're talking about that in our country, I learned this, you know, it was sort of, I learned more civics in some respects than anything else I learned, you know, over the last year, is that in our country with the federalist approach, that there's this tendency to let the states and the locals do what they feel they need to do for good reason, because there's a lot of good reasons because of the diversity of states demographically, culturally, and otherwise in our very large country. So if you leave it all locally without any federal help or plan, even though the states in many respects really know what they're doing, some get it right and some don't. And I think that's what we learn clearly. So there are probably areas, Eric, that are doing it easily and very well. And there isn't that concern that, you know, you're not able to negotiate whatever electronic or uh, computer terrain that you have. The other thing is you don't want the federal government to do it all. So what has happened in the past 
is that we've leaned a little bit too much towards the federal government telling the states, do it the way you want to do it, you're on your own. And then instead of sharing what works across the board, some are struggling and some are not. So the bottom line is that we need a much better collaboration and cooperation between the federal government and the states in implementing this. We have to get a system that works well, regardless of what your circumstance is. A lot of the issues that you're illuminating for us, Dr. Fauci, has to do with how do we get vaccine to the willing? which is a Herculean undertaking. But there's a lot of concern that certain communities don't trust the science, the results, the potential benefit versus unknown risk. And that's disproportionate in certain communities. What strategies do we need to develop to help with this vaccine hesitancy concern? Because that may undermine much of the successes you've shared with us. Okay, so that is literally a full-time effort that's going on right now that even antedated our realization of the success of the efficacy and the safety. And that is to, in a very proactive way, engage the community in general, but particularly the brown and black community. And what we've learned from experience, and I've had to learn this from my brown and black colleagues and friends, because I have spent, Lindsay and Eric, interestingly, I wouldn't say a disproportionate, but a clearly significant proportion of every single day being on the phone with a podcast, with an Instagram live, whatever, with black churches, with congressional caucuses, black caucuses, Hispanic caucuses, black bishops. Yesterday I was on this mega church. It was really terrific. I mean, you know, Hundreds of thousands of people follow this church and you're there talking about it. And the one thing I've learned is the first thing you've got to do is absolutely respect the hesitancy of the minority population. They keep coming back and saying the history of Tuskegee. And some people may say, oh, my goodness, that was so long ago. Forget about it. But no, they don't, can't and should not forget about it because it happened and it was shameful. But what we have got to convince them of in an outreach way is that the safeguards that have been put in place since then, without putting it aside or forgetting it, would make it essentially impossible for a Tuskegee situation to arise again for so many reasons. And it's at multiple levels. I mean, you guys know that because when you get a paper that you even look at it and judge it as to the ethical aspects of it, and which is very, very appropriate that you do that. That wasn't in place decades and decades ago. So that's the first thing. Once you get them to realize that you respect their hesitancy and their concern, then in a stepwise fashion, you go through what is it about the process that is concerning you? The one that's very common is you did it so fast you must have been cutting corners. And then you go by and explain to them that the speed is, first of all, not related at all to cutting corners, but it is a reflection of the extraordinary advances in vaccine platform technology that allowed us to do things in months as opposed to years. That's the first thing. The second thing is that don't measure speed by the time 
a virus gets put on a public database with its sequence to the time the vaccine goes into a person. But look at the 10 years that it took scientists like Barney Graham to figure out how to get the right confirmation of a prefusion molecule to be stabilized with various mutations so that it is not only stable, but it's highly immunogenic. They don't understand that until you tell them, all right, it took 11 months, but the process took about 10 years to do. So the next most common question that I get is, okay, Speed is all right, but how do I know it really is safe and effective? I hear so many things about political influence, about rushing, you know, uh, the companies, maybe they just want to make a lot of money. And you explain to them something that many of them don't realize, that the companies in many respects don't even have access to the data until the Data and Safety Monitoring Board looks at it, examines it, and then says, okay, now the data can be looked at examined, presented to the FDA, and then the FDA itself, with the career scientists there, use their VERPAC or their own advisory committee. It was astounding to me how few people really realized that the examination of the data starts with an independent group that's beholden to nobody, not the federal government or not the company, and that the decision to go out, A, is independent and transparent, and B, ultimately, everybody's going to see the data because it's likely going to get published, likely in the New England Journal of Medicine. <laughs> so, so they've got to understand that their concerns are understandable, but there's an answer for each of those. And we just have to keep going over and over and over again. So we're expecting to see new data in the days ahead on new vaccine candidates from Janssen Novavax, the companies you talked about, what are you going to look for in these new trial data that will be important in understanding how we're going to use these new vaccine candidates? Well, there are a couple of interesting things that almost accidentally are going to partially answer some of our concerns about how effective the vaccine are going to be against these evolving mutations. Because take, for example, the Janssen trial. You know, by coincidence alone, the data are going to be from the USA, from South Africa, and from Brazil. And that's exactly what we want to know. <laughs> we want to know, I mean, that's the burning question that we will hopefully literally in the next week or so, maybe less, we'll know that a vaccine, namely the Janssen, whose spike protein is against the current wild-type virus, how is it effective, relatively speaking, in the United States versus South Africa versus Brazil? So I have to be quite honest. I do not know what the data are. They're being looked at by the Data and Safety Monitoring Board, and I have been very meticulous about not getting myself to know the data until the appropriate time for me. But it would be really interesting if there was a differential efficacy, which would tell us how well the current vaccines that we're using are going to be if, and it's a big if, the South African as well as the Brazilian becomes dominant in our own society, if it ever does. It might not, but if it does, we're going to know that. So that's one of the first really important things we're going to learn from that trial. 
but also it's a single dose trial. So it's going to be very interesting to see what is the relative efficacy against wild type of the single dose. It doesn't have the same cold chain requirements and it's less expensive. So it would be good for us here because we always would be interested in additional doses of vaccine, but it also has major implications for the developing world. So a lot of people are looking very closely at what's going to happen, I believe, literally in the next several days to a week or so. So that's very interesting. I've got a couple of follow-up questions to what you said. First, is viral sequencing of the people who do develop disease part of the Janssen trial? Was that built in or is that easy to do at this point? Well, right now it's pretty easy to do. You know, literally, Eric, that's what they're doing as you and I and Lindsay are speaking. <laughs> they're, they're doing that right now. And that's the reason why I believe they're not coming out yet with the data because they want to have the whole package. They want to take a look at what the sequence of the virus that is infecting people who've been vaccinated in the breakthrough infections. That's exactly what they're trying to find out. You know, getting to sequencing, obviously, we as a nation need to, and we're already starting to do it, need to have a much more organized, comprehensive genomic surveillance sequencing capability. There's a lot of sequencing going on in this country, but it's done at different institutions, academic and otherwise. And the CDC is finally now has a unit called SPHERES, S-P-H-E-R-E-S, which is going to be coordinating and consolidating all of the efforts that are going on in different parts of the country. But we have been really in a difficult situation that we, in some respects, created for ourselves, where, you know, a year into the outbreak, and we only have a relatively small percentage of the isolate sequenced, or at least sequenced in a way where we have a database where everyone knows what it is. Now, somebody may have sequenced it, but, but it isn't connected, and it's going to get connected very soon. Yeah. And I'd add a lot of these are convenient sampling, which is not necessarily going to tell us what's really out there. There's not a systematic look. Uh, to change streams a little bit, some of the vaccines that have been tested in other countries have come in with efficacy results that are in the 80% range instead of the incredibly good 90 to 95% range for the mRNA vaccines we have right now. What do we do with vaccines that are good, but not great? How do you use those? Well, first of all, we want to make sure that if you don't hit the 94 to 95 and you're in the 80-ish, as you mentioned, Eric, we want to look at what it does against serious disease, because the primary endpoints of the Moderna and the Pfizer were clinically recognizable disease uh, not necessarily infection. We're going to get some data on that a little bit later. But they were even better against serious disease. So I think there's going to be a utility purely on the basis of we've got to have enough vaccine for the world, for the you know seven or eight billion people in the world. But it's going to be a messaging difficulty. And I'm going to tell you, likely as someone who is there out in the public trying to explain things, it's going to be a headache where people are going to say, ah, so 80% effective, so you're going to give it to the developing world and you're not going to give the one that's 90-some. I mean, you know that's coming. You could see that 10 miles away. But there likely would really be a utility for a vaccine that is really good against serious disease 
may not be in the 90s for clinically relevant disease, but it's inexpensive, doesn't have a cold chain requirement, and is capable of making billions of doses. And that's exactly what some of those companies are able to do. So I think there really will be a utility to it, provided we can get by what would easily be sort of a sand trap when it comes to a messaging. I mean, the other side of that equation is transmissibility. And how much do we know the impact of these emerging vaccines on transmissibility? And how would that fit into potential deployment strategies? Well, it's a great question. Yes, we don't know enough about it. What we do know, and we'll be finding this out, um, you know, you could do it by serial quantitation of viral load and nasopharynx in those who get infected asymptomatic being vaccinated and those who get infected asymptomatic not vaccinated. So we can get that answer. But the idea of what the impact is on infectivity is really going to be critical. Uh, yes, theoretically, and we've seen it already, that someone can be vaccinated, can be protected against clinical apparent disease, but has virus in their nasopharynx. The thing that we don't know, which is really important, is does that not make any difference? Because the immune response in the person keeps the viral load so low in the nasopharynx that even though they're infected, so you haven't protected in the sense of sterilizing immunity, you really have protected against transmission. And that is the absolute critical thing. Because if you have a vaccine, one of the ones that are coming up that may not be as effective as it were in preventing clinically apparent disease, but are really good in preventing the spread of infection, you can have a major impact on the dynamics of an outbreak in a country by a vaccine that on paper does not necessarily look as good as the 95% effective vaccine. So that is something we need to really take a close look at because that could really have an important impact. So we're coming to you from Boston and we used to have a really good quarterback on our football team who was often referred to as the greatest of all time, the GOAT. Um, and you've been in this odd situation where back in the days of HIV, uh, where you really led the national response and really the international response as PEPFAR came around, you were in this funny position of being GOAT in both senses at the same time. Certainly among scientists and among much of the public, you were really thought of as the person who really helped guide us to finally a therapy that really worked. But among activists, you were being burned in effigy for a time. And now we come to a second outbreak where similarly, you're revered by a large part of the public. And at least in the last several months, there's this very negative reaction. Were there any lessons you took from your time during the HIV outbreak? Not that it's gone, but during the early days of the HIV outbreak that you've been able to apply this time around. Yeah, I mean, it's complicated, Eric, to make a direct, precise comparison because there are so many other extenuating circumstances and aspects of it. But there is one thing that does stand out in my own mind. And that really is that when you're dealing with a public health problem of the extraordinary impact of HIV, as well as COVID-19, that there are a lot of other things 
that are out there that can be distracting. And the one thing you really got to focus on, and that's the lesson I learned, is to focus on the enormity of the task and what you can do to make a positive impact on it. And whether there are good things or bad things that are peripheral, you've got to remember that they're peripheral. And I get asked that question a lot right now. You know, this adulation that I get, and it's mostly not me, Tony Fauci, that you guys know because we're in the same field together, but it is, you know, being a symbol for what the country craved, which was clarity, honesty, integrity, and science. And I became the symbol of that. So I think that's a good thing. The one thing you don't want is to let it go to your head and think that there's something special about you. It's something that the country needs. On the other hand, when you have people who are extremely hostile to you because you're trying to deliver a public health measure, in my mind, rather than getting distracted by that, I just say it's a reflection of the divisiveness in society. So the lesson that you're asking me about, Eric, is that focus on what your job is and what you need to do. And the other stuff, as interesting and extraordinary as it is, is really a distraction, one way or the other. Distraction in the positive sense and a distraction in the negative sense. So lesson learned, do your job, focus on what you need to do, and always let the science be what directs you. Always let the science be what directs you. That's the lesson. It was that way back in the days of HIV. And it's absolutely what's going on right now with COVID-19. So Dr. Fauci, there is something special about you. There's also something special about our many readers and listeners and our practitioners who we struggle to inform. What advice can you give to our listeners as to what they can do to help with this response, given where we are today? Well, the one thing that I, I mean, it's a complicated issue, but I was so impressed by our community, Lindsay, the people who read the journal, the people who are there either directly taking care of patients or are in a situation related to what's going on with patients, is how this extraordinary challenge that we're facing has brought out, in my mind, the best of the biomedical community, the best of the healthcare providers. So when people talk about who are the heroes and the heroines in all of this, you know, a lot of them reading the New England Journal of Medicine, that's for damn sure. <laughs> uh, and they're out there in the trenches and it's just extraordinary, you know, how brave they are out there. It's kind of what we went through, Lindsay, back in the early years of HIV in a relatively smaller population. It's now the entire biomedical community of healthcare providers are all involved in it. So there's a lot of analogies between the dedication that a small segment of us were doing in 1981, two, three, four, five, six, whereas now, I mean, there's not a hospital in the United States where healthcare providers are not impacted by this. And they've really, really risen to the occasion. So, I mean, to me, that's the thing that impresses me most about this. Thank you, Dr. Fauci. And thank you, Eric and Lindsay.